to your heart than God himself. We would not lie unless we had made something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. Idolatry. We're going to talk about the consequences of turning to that in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to spend some time, a little bit of time, talking about how this text, chapter 9, describes Israel's fall in their relationship with God, how it fell apart. I want to trace it this morning because we start here with a passage of God that describes God's love and it ends with God's hatred. And in between, it makes a stop at three different cities in Israel's history and in Israel's land. So let's start with Israel's, uh, God's love for Israel. We're going to talk about the consequences of their idolatry, but let's start about where they started. Look at verse 10. How did God find Israel? When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit in the fig tree. Now imagine here that you're caught in the desert. It's hot. It's dry. It's very sandy. You've been out in it long enough, and the sun has been beating down on you long enough that you can feel that dryness in your throat. There's nothing soft anywhere. There's nothing cool. And then as you're walking along, trudging, you come up over a hill, and down in the valley you see, inexplicably and all by itself, this, this green plant, big leaves on it doesn't belong there, but it's where it is. So you, you run up to the plant, and you find it's a grapevine. And on that grapevine, there are fresh, juicy grapes. And you pull one off, and you put it in your mouth, and you, that first bite, and it explodes in your mouth, and the sweet juice comes from those grapes. Is your mouth watering a little bit right now? This is, this is how God is describing his delight in finding Israel. Oh, he loved these people. He talks about the first fig on a fig tree, the early fruit. Does, does the, are there strawberries at the corn wagon yet? Oh, they're coming, right? Oh, those first strawberries. The image is that God loves these people. When I found you at the beginning, oh, I loved you. I delighted in you. You were to me as a sweet grape in the wilderness. I don't want to juvenilize this book, but this is God is singing over his people. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. God's singing to them. That's how his relation, he loved them. That's how this begins. And then, even in verse 2, there's that contrast. Three cities, three regions. The first one is Baal or Baal, Peor. Hmm. That's in verse, two, verse 10 also. I've I told you before how sometimes I, I think reading the Old Testament prophets is among the most difficult reading in, in the Bible. I struggle sometimes with these books. The more I study Hosea, the more I realize that one of the reasons that I struggle is because the prophets make so many allusions and references to things that have come before. One of the reasons I struggle to read the prophets is because I don't know the material that comes before well enough. Oh, I'm indicted. If you want to read the prophets really well, you have to know the books that come before. Three cities, Baal Peor, where this great sin takes place. Now, what is he talking about here? 
That story is recorded for us in the book of Numbers in chapter 25. So I'd like you to keep your finger in Hosea, and would you turn back with me to Numbers chapter 25? Numbers is right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 25. This is the first city that's mentioned in this text chronologically. Uh, Numbers 25. We have this great sin that takes place at a city. The region is actually called Peor, and it was named Baal Peor uh, on the basis of their great sin. So Numbers 25, look what it says. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The sexual immorality was part of how they offered sacrifices. It was part of the ceremony. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You can imagine this. There's a group of them that are just crying over this sin and weeping. And here's a guy, he parades his cult prostitute Midianite woman before them and takes her into his tent. Verse 7. When Phinehas... Son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this. He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Now the gods that the Israelites are worshiping here at Baal Peor and in the book of Hosea are the same. They're fertility gods. You would worship the fertility gods so that your wife would have children and so that your uh, crops would grow healthy in your field, so your field would produce crops. That's the promise of these fertility gods. And the fertility gods also, not only did they offer promise of agricultural prosperity and and family growth, they also promised sexual uh, license. Uh, You would worship, you would engage in sexual immorality as part of your worship. You can see why this would be attractive to these people. Well, you also can see in this passage God's ferocity, his fierce response to this. Phinehas spears them through, and, and actually God blesses him. He's pleased with what Phinehas has, do, has done. Now we need to go back to Hosea, but we're going to stop at Psalm 103 on the way. So would you do that? Let's stop at Psalm 106. We have commentary here. Did I say 106? I don't know which it is. It's 103 or 106. One or the other, we'll figure out when we get there. 106. 106. Psalm 106. And uh, here is uh, the Psalms making commentary on uh, what happened at Baal, Baal Peor. Look at Psalm 106, verse 28. They yoked themselves, verse 28 says, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds and a plague broke out among them. The Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. Now skip down to verse 
36. Look at verse 36 of Psalm 106. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did, by their deeds. They prostituted themselves. So here again we have common themes, prostitution, false gods, the worship of Baal, and uh, in addition to sexual license and good crops, the gods also demanded child sacrifice. That's what's discussed here in verses 36 to 38. That'll be important. We'll talk about that. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. This is Baal Peor. First, chronologically in the text, in this story of God's love for Israel, you're like a grape in the desert, and then came that terrible town. Well, there's another town that's mentioned here. This is first mentioned in the text, verse 9. Look at this other city. They have sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. Gibeah, Gibeah. Now, where in the Bible is Gibeah? Gibeah is in the book of Judges. We won't turn there right now, but I'll just tell the story. It's a terrible one. In those days, in the book of Judges, there was a man. He was traveling through the nation of Israel with his concubine, his second wife, his secondary wife. He was walking through, uh, traveling with her, and he came to the city of Gibeah. It was an Israelite city. He thought he'd be safe there. And he started to set up camp in the town square, and a man came and invited him home to his house. Israelite hospitality, it's great. Except the man seemed unusually anxious to get them off the streets. It's odd. Well, uh, they went into the man's house, and they ate dinner with him, and, and time was passing. And when it got dark outside, and uh, late into the evening, there was pounding on the door. It was men from Gibeah who were demanding that their towns, the, the man who lived in their town, that he throw the visitor out to them so that they could uh, abuse him. Homosexual rape in an Israelite town, just, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, they don't do that. Um, instead, what they do is they throw the concubine out to satisfy the crowd. This poor woman is abused and uh, 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 mistreated all night long until the wee hours of the morning when she stumbles away from the crowd and falls at the door of this house dead. Her husband, her fake husband, secondary husband, walks out of the door in the morning and he sees her lying there and he gives her a kick and says, come on, let's go, and discovers that she's dead. It's a terrible, it's a terrible story. God says, Israel, you are that deeply corrupt. That's how corrupt you have become. He mentions one more city in verse 15. We start with God's delight. They're not lovable people right now, are they? Verse 15 mentions the city of Gilgal, the region of Gilgal. Now, there's not a specific, specific story about Gilgal, except maybe the fact that Gilgal was the place where they crowned Saul king. Samuel the prophet recognized that this was their rejection of God's leadership over them in, in crowning Saul king. Maybe this is, he's referring to this time where they turn decisively from God. They want a human king. They don't want God anymore. And what's the result of their rejection of God? The text says, because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. We move from love, from delight, 
to hate. God says, I will no longer love them. Now, don't pass over this too quickly. God hates, he hates these Israelites. Does God hate you? How would you know if God hates you? Apparently, he is capable of hating You've all heard that expression, you know the expression, we're supposed to uh, hate the sin and love the sinner. Except it doesn't accord very well with this passage. It's, It's very clearly, I hated them. Listen to Psalm 11.5. I didn't write it down, but you, you listen to the, what the verse says. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. If you love violence, if you love to beat people up, if you, love, if you are entertained by seeing people beat people up, if you love violence, God hates you. He hates you with a passion. It's not something we talk about very often. Here it is very clearly in this text. Notice the, 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 how, what, the process. God finds them. He loves them. He delights in them. There is a turning. They turn away from him to false gods. The false gods lead them into wickedness and God hates them. His delight, there's a turning. Wickedness, hatred. Furious rage. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. I know this just a little bit, but, but how could God be loving at all if he doesn't hate in this passage? If the God you worship never hates anything or anybody, then he is not a God of love. Why? This is a passage about people's children and what they were doing to them. If God does not hate the people who abuse children, if he does not hate pedophiles, if God does not hate people who sell children into sex slavery, do you know that in the United States, every two minutes a child is bought or sold for sex and the average age of them is 13? If God does not hate that and those involved in it, then then God is not good and he is not loving and you should not worship him and you should not follow him. God is not a God of love if there are things that he does not hate. God's delight, turning to another God, wickedness and hatred. Actually, God's fury begins even before though this, the wickedness. It's incited with this turning to other gods And we see this in the consequences that begin for his people. Now, we've been talking about the text for a long time, and now we're just going to finally begin the five consequences. That's okay. They start more general. They move to more specific. Consequences of loyalty to a lesser God. Here they are. Number one, deception. Deception. When you turn to a lesser God, to some other idol to satisfy you, prepare to be deceived. Look at what verse 4 says. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. The false god the Israelites were worshiping promised them fruitful harvests. And to express their dependence upon God at harvest time, these gods, much of the worship took place on threshing floors or near wine presses. But this is one of the places where Hosea the prophet reminds them, those gods don't feed you. What you do at the threshing floor is not, that's not where you get your food. This is not, the, these gods are not the gods that provide for you. 
He's made this argument before. Flip back with me to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, if you would please, with me. Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. Hosea is talking about his own relationship with his wife. It's kind of an image of Israel. Uh, Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Look at verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. You will turn from God to an idol and you will be tempted to believe that it is delivering on his promises. Sin is always attractive like this. It's always beautiful. It's always at first pleasurable. You will be tempted to think that it is really your job or your good looks or your pornography or your food or your family that make you, that deliver on these promises. They're the things that make you uh, feel protected or significant or really give you peace. But notice This passage is one that reminds us about God's patience. Today on the planet, billions of people will turn to to things. They'll turn to something or someone else to give them life and fruitfulness. And and they'll enjoy it. they They will find some satisfaction there without even thinking of God at all. And and they'll believe that all those benefits, that they deserve all those benefits because of who or what they're serving. But it's His patience, it's God's patience that allows that to happen. Idols make promises they cannot keep. Do not be deceived. Have you ever noticed in the newspaper they publish them occasionally? They publish occasionally in the newspaper pictures of people who have been uh, addicted to uh, crystal meth. They smoke crystal meth. And they'll show the before and after pictures. In the before pictures, these, there's young and healthy looking, attractive people. And then uh, after just a few years of smoking crystal meth, they look horrible. Their teeth are gone. They're covered with sores. They've aged 30 years in, in five. It's terrible. Crystal meth doesn't deliver on its promises. It can't keep its promises. No idol keeps its promises. Deception. Deception is the first consequence. Here's the second one. Dullness. Dullness. There may be a better word. This is what I'm going to use. If you come up with a better word, great. You find something better. We're going to go back to verse 10. Look what it says here, verse 10. The last line is what I'm interested in here. They become, they worship these idols and they become as vile as the thing they love. As vile as the thing they loved. This is a principle that's repeated in the Bible. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. What you worship is the trajectory of your life. It determines what you will become. We learn this in Psalm 115. Look at what Psalm 115 says. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. Here, in this passage, you become dull, you become flat, you become senseless. You may have eyes, but you won't be able to see. You may have noses, but you won't be able to hear. You may have ears, but you won't be able to hear. 
you begin to take on the characteristics of what you worship. A few months ago, Time Magazine did a major cover story on uh, pornography and the impact it's having on our culture and, uh, culture. and one of the repeated lines or themes in this article was about how pornography ruins normal relationships with other human beings. Uh, pornography focuses on the mechan- mechanistic acts of sexuality. It doesn't focus on relationship at all. It's about people who can apparently do just a little bit more for just a little bit more pleasure. Pornography does not expand your ability, your potential for relationships, for genuine pleasure. It stifles you. You become less of who you are, not more of who you are. And the same is true for whatever you worship. When we gathered together this morning, if you, had been, if you were paying attention to what we were singing, how much of God's character we were celebrating as we were singing, His power, His goodness, His mercy, His justice... We sing about these things. We remind one another of these things because you become like what you worship. Now here's consequence number three. Consequence number three. Hostility toward God and his messengers. Hostility toward God and his messengers. Look again at verses seven and eight. It says, The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person, a maniac. The prophet is speaking to the people and they can't refute what he is saying about them. They can't refute his indictment of them. So what do they do? They're left with nothing but hostility, name calling. Hosea stands up and he says, this is what God says. And they say, sit down, you fool, you maniac. They will not listen. They can't listen. They can't listen. All there is is just hostility toward them. This past week there was a hearing before Congress and uh, they were talking about the Obama uh, administration's new guidelines for schools about transgendered students. And there was uh, a witness who was speaking. I don't know about her religious affiliation if she has any. I don't know anything about the witness except she was raising questions about the policy. She was objecting to the uh, new transgender policy. And one of the representatives said to one of the witnesses, she looked at her and she said, you are an ignorant bigot, lady. The chairman of the, the, the committee said, uh, uh, Congressman, we, we'll move on. you lose your time for that. She said, well, this woman is an ignorant bigot and I just want it in the congressional record that I think she's an ignorant bigot. Um. You, you should be prepared for that more and more and more. Be prepared for it by recognizing that it's not anything new, name-calling. And actually, our great challenge, a little bit of a tension, I suppose, our great talent, challenge will be to continue to speak what God has said, but without becoming, in response, vicious and vile and self-righteous. That's actually going to be the great challenge. That's why I wrote down 2 Timothy 2. Remember what this says. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And the, and the Lord's servant, whoops, sorry, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. 
gentleness, not quarrelsome, gracious in your response. My wife uses garlic to cook. Uh, We use our garlic press. I must wash that every day, at least twice, it seems to me. She loves to put garlic in food. And uh, she gets the garlic out of the refrigerator, she takes the cloves, and she puts it in the garlic press, and she squeezes it down. And what happens is the aroma and the flavor of the garlic doesn't become apparent until you put it in the press, until you crush it. Let's resolve, brothers and sisters, that as we are increasingly pressed and crushed by a culture that turns faster and faster in this moral revolution, Let's resolve that when we're crushed, that's when the sweet flavor and aroma of our dependence on Jesus Christ, that that's what becomes evident. That, that that's what, what our, our true allegiance to Jesus, that aroma of it becomes known as we are crushed and pressed. Let's resolve that that's how we respond. Well, hostility, hostility to God. We're going to move on here to consequence number four. And, and as we get here, remember, we're getting more specific to God's covenant people. So here's consequence number four. Deception, dullness, hostility to God and his messengers. Next, a loss of identity. Number four, a loss of identity. Um, what is happening here in this passage, the Israelites are God's special people. They live in the Lord's land. They have distinctive worship. They have their own calendar, their own history. But these things are going to begin to fade. They're going to lose them all. Verse 3 says they're going to leave the Lord's land. They're going to abandon their diet. They're going to eat unclean food in Assyria. Um, Verse 5, it says, what are you going to do on the day of your appointed festivals on the feast days of the Lord? They're not going to be able to worship at all because they're not going to have enough food and they're going to be separated from the land. Verse 17 says, they are going to be wanderers among the nations. God had called them out of Egypt. They were his own special people. And now they're just going to go back. They're going to be dissipated and gone. Actually, that's true still today. Most descendants of Israel are scattered among the nations. No temple, no land, no sacrifices. They were God's blessed people. They were his special people. And in verse 12, we don't have blessing pronounced on them. Instead, we have the opposite pronounced on them. Woe to them. Followers of Jesus Christ today were called to this sort of distinctiveness. We demonstrate the love that marks our fidelity to him. Churches are supposed to be distinctive places with distinctive people. And here in this passage, it's lost. No fidelity. Now here's consequence number five. Consequence number five, barrenness. Barrenness. Actually, barrenness is a word that Dwayne Garrett would apply to the entire chapter. Uh, Pastor Scott read John 15. Uh, people, uh, how do followers of Jesus Christ bear fruit through their relationship with Christ, through abiding in Him? There's fruitfulness in John 15. There's barrenness in Hosea chapter 9. Barrenness of, of two different kinds. There's agricultural barrenness. There's not going to be enough food to make a sacrifice. There's only going to be food for themselves. The threshing floor is not going to feed them. But then there's barrenness with regard to their children. Verse 11, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, I will bereave them of every one. Now why is God allowing 
them or refusing to allow them to have children? Why is that happening in this passage? Why did he promise to slay their children? First of all, as we think about this, we should remember that this is God's specific discipline for specific time and specific people in this specific place. Not all infertility is a result of the judgment of God. I bet it feels that way sometimes, though. We're experiencing a little bit of a baby boom in our church. Every day, somebody is pregnant. It's wonderful. Except if you're sitting in the pews and you want to be one of those women, that is really discouraging. Very hard. A few weeks ago, I was... um, you know, we try to be sensitive to this, this, this struggle in the midst of this baby boom. A few weeks ago at, at the membership class, I was uh, talking to the, the prospective members about the interview with the elders. Everybody who joins our church is interviewed by the elders, and it makes people nervous. They get really nervous when they have to go to the elders to be interviewed because our elders are just terrifying people. And I said to the people, I try to, to help them. I try to encourage them. You don't need to be afraid. I said, we have, no one has ever cried in an elder interview. Say that. Except as soon as I said it, I remembered there was a time once that it did happen. It was the elders. And we were praying for a couple that was uh, going to join our church, and they, they were trying to conceive, trying to have a baby, and we prayed for them. And our elders were weeping before God for this couple. Uh, this, is not, this is not a passage that is an indictment of you today in this culture, in this environment, not in Israel, not at this point in time, struggling with infertility. That's not what this passage is about. Don't read Hosea 9 that way. This judgment is related specifically to their position as God's people. It appears, it seems like maybe they have had some sort of baby boom themselves going on here. And God wants to make it very clear to them that the children that they are having are not a result of the blessing of the fertility gods. God had promised Israel, uh, God had promised Abraham descendants. They do not come from Baal. Maybe the most important principle or element here is the, the practice of child sacrifice. I've mentioned this before, I'm, I'm sure, the, the worship of the pagan god Molech. Whenever you see Molech written in scripture, I, he's a horrible pagan god. They would build statues of Molech. I've mentioned this, I know. They would make his hands out of iron. They build a fire under his hands as worship so that they would get those iron hands red hot with heat and then they'd take their children and place them in Molech's hands. Horrific. Horrific. God says to the people, I will not give you children that you can offer to Molech. And if you have any of those children, I will take them before you before I let you offer them as sacrifices to that false god. This is the severity with which God faces his idolatrous people. I will not give you children that you are going to offer to him. And we come again to the heaviness of the book of Hosea. God's people are the objects of God's hatred. And the judgment falls on their sons and on their daughters. Don't move quickly past this. Read this. Think about it. This text is here to prepare us 
for what comes in the New Testament. Because when God says, I hate you and I will take your sons and your daughters, it is preparing us for what the Bible says when it says that God loved the world so much that he gave his son. The sons of this generation are going to suffer. They're going to suffer this discipline from God because of this tremendous wickedness. And the New Testament story is the story of God's Son, God's Son, who suffered for us to rescue us because of our great wickedness. Notice this. God's hatred and God's love meet together. How much does God hate sin? He hates sin He hates it enough that his own son is the only sufficient payment for the penalty that we deserve. How much does God love us? Enough that he offered his son to be our sin bearer. There's a heaviness here in the book of Hosea, but it is a heaviness that is to point to the weight of glory. This is further invitation in the Bible to turn to him forgiveness for forgiveness and to find life and peace in him by faith because of his, his son. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge again the heaviness that is in this book. And, and, and we think about these people and we're sometimes perplexed how could they do that to their own children. And, and yet, Lord, we live in a nation where children are bought and sold and neglected and left and abused and beaten and victimized. We read Hosea aright, Father, when we see ourselves in the pages of this text. Father, we acknowledge that you are a holy God, and though we don't think and speak of it often, you are a God who hates sin and those who revel in it. You hate the arrogant, you hate gossips, you hate those who love violence, you hate those who will abuse children. We thank you for thus what we learn of your great love, that you demonstrate how much you love us and that while we were yet sinners, not grapes in the desert, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Father. Fill us with gratitude and joy, reverence for you, because you are a holy wrath-filled, loving God. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.